Um, I do hope that this series in 1 John has been uh, comforting. I hope it's been challenging. I hope it's been um, you know, co- comforting to the, uh, the challenged and challenging to the comfortable. Um, but now we turn to the final chapter in 1 John chapter 5, this final chapter that is the, the, the climax and it is the uh, summary of the entire letter. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. I attended a, a debate between uh, Dr. James White, and, um, who's a Christian apologist, and uh, an Islamic scholar, Dr. Shabir Ali, this was on Wednesday at Georgia Tech, and, and the two were debating the, the Trinity versus the Tawhid, which is uh, the Islamic view of the oneness of Allah. Uh, I couldn't really make heads or tails of what Dr. Ali was, what he believed. Um, it was a, a mixture of some Jewish tradition and some Christian tradition, but they all had to align with Islam, um, of whose sort of founding document didn't come around until the 600s. What was abundantly clear was that one faith had consistency, coherence, and, and a broad and a deep history. The other seemed to just be a, a, a mishmash of thoughts and ideas. And I understand, I'm, I'm obviously biased in this situation, but, but at the same time, uh, it had, the, the Christian faith had a more cr- clear timeline uh, and, 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 and a consistent narrative from creation uh, to today. Islam does not have that. And yet it seemed in this debate throughout the night that, that the, the, primarily the argument was over the Bible and, and, and the biblical authors it rarely centered on the lack of depth within the Quran. The Bible seems to be judged under so much harsher uh, uh, standards than any other religious text, meaning that Christians are constantly on the defensive. And that could put believers in an anxious position. If the rest of the world seems to constantly be coming after you, telling you that your faith is weak or, or unhelpful or even damaging, and your flesh struggles against uh, the things of this dying world, and, and, and the devil is attacking at all these different places, then I think we need something to give us confidence, and God knows that. And that is what John is doing in his letter. He's reminding us that those of us who have put our faith, who have put our saving trust in Christ, are born of God. Now, we've been hearing that phrase sort of over and over and over again. Faith in Christ gives us a a new identity. Uh, You are reborn. Jesus tells Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Being born of God means God's seed abides within us. And so our nature changes, as we saw in in verse 18 of what we were just reading. And it's illustrated. It's, it's, It's that we have this enduring bent towards righteousness. We have a love of God. We have a a love of the people of God. We have this desire to obey God. 
and his commandments are not burdensome. What does that mean? We know that the law shows us the depth of our sin. But we also have to realize that it's also the delight of the redeemed heart to keep it. We think of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits uh, in the seat of scoffers, but delights in the law of the Lord. Still, that, that... that sort of remaining presence of sin, it it, it makes it hard to see the law as a delight most times. John reminds us of the goodness of God's law found throughout Scripture. John Calvin writes in his comments on this verse, this reminder has been added lest difficulties, as it is usually the case, should dampen or lessen our zeal. How do you view the law of God? Do you see it always, always, always as a burden? If so, then I think maybe we have a wrong view of God's law. And perhaps, likely, a wrong view of God himself. Because it should be a delight. But what else does being born of God do? Because John wants us to be clear. He wants us to be clear on what we already have now that the Son of God, now that eternal life has come into the world. Why? So that instead of us living these lives of anxiety and, and fear and, and, and following the lies that the world is constantly telling us, we can live lives of bold confidence as we await the return of Jesus, our Savior. And it gives us three things according to this passage. If you notice, John repeats this phrase, and this is... He says this in verse 4, verse 11, and in verse 14. And this is the victory, and this is the testimony, and this is the confidence. And so these are our outline for today, the the three things. The victory that has overcome the world, our faith. The testimony that God gave us eternal life in His Son. The confidence that we have towards Him in prayer. How about we pray and ask that God would... Uh, illumine our minds and help us to think uh, as we move forward this morning. Father, we're grateful that you have called us children of God, and yet we know there are things that are fighting against us even at this moment. Father, we pray that those things would subside and that you would give us focus as as we focus in on these truths that you've given us in your word. Father, my prayer is that people would not leave here today with just uh, a little bit of information, but that it would move from our heads into our hearts and into our actions, into the very lives that we live. For your word brings life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. First, being born of God makes us overcomers of the world. Verse 4, for everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Do you see the point? 
John is telling uh, uh, those of us who trust in Christ that we've already won. We have already overcome the world. It's past tense. It has already happened. How? Through faith. Through faith. As Christians, we believe, verse 5, that Jesus is the Son of God, that He is the Christ, He is the King, and that He has now come. Uh, John wants us to be certain about these things. Not wishy-washy, but certain, because God Himself has given us witness to their truth. But not just one witness, but by three witnesses. Verse 7, there are three that testify, the Spirit the water, and the blood. And these three agree. First, the water, verse 6. First of all, I'll say there are a lot of different views on, on what the water and the blood and the Spirit represent. Um, you're welcome to look those up. I'm not going to get in detail on those, again, because of time. Um, but here's where I think it kind of lands. Um, and, and the other thing is that I've looked at the three main interpretations, and I think <clears throat> the main emphasis is on the incarnation of Christ. And, and I, think, uh, I think that's where John's focus is. So this is where I've sort of landed with, with where I think this is going. First, the water, verse 6, Jesus' baptism by water. When God spoke from heaven, saying, You are my beloved Son, with you I am pleased. Second, the blood in verse 6 again. The blood which Jesus shed on the cross for our sins. The the blood which John himself uh, saw with his own eyes that testifies to the reality of these things as well. And thirdly, the Spirit, verse 7. The Spirit who descended like a dove at Jesus' baptism and who years later declared Jesus to be the Son of God with power by His mighty resurrection from the dead. The Spirit who testified by raising Jesus from the dead. These three witnesses together testify to the truth of what we believe. To the fact that Jesus is who he says he is. To the fact that the Bible, uh, what the Bible says of Christ is true. John says, verse 9, we accept a man's testimony. We accept, uh, we accept a man's testimony as, as valid of, of knowing things. I mean, think of a court case. When someone testifies, that testimony is brought in as a witness. It's, it's accepted as evidence. But God's testimony is greater. God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God. <laughs> that he has borne concerning his son, whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar. What's, what is the point? What is the point here? If you believe that the Father, uh, if you believe what the Father has testified about the Son at his baptism, on the cross, by his resurrection, then even now, by faith, you have overcome the world. That's the point. You are a victor. You are victorious because these certain things are true. They are certain. The second thing John tells us is that, uh, is that uh, we possess eternal life. And now he's outlined the witnesses in the previous section. John no, now goes on to describe 
uh, the content of their testimony, verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in the Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I don't know if that can be more clear. If you know Jesus and you have put your faith in him, you don't have to sit here worrying about your future. Right? Through faith, you have the Son. And the Son is someone who has life in himself. So that if you have him, you have life. You have eternal life. That's the life that it's talking about. You have eternal life in him. Eternal life is not something that begins when you die. Remember Jesus' words in John chapter 5. I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in the one who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He he has already crossed over uh, from death to life. Uh, Colossians chapter 1 talks about being delivered from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of the sun. There's a, a, a transition that takes place. So if you know Christ, then you know eternal life. But the opposite is true as well. Uh, I had a friend in uh, sort of grade school growing up, and I remember in his bathroom he used to have a little note card that said, No God, K-N-O-W, no life, K-N-O-W. And then a slash, and it said, No God, N-O, no life. I think that would be confronting if someone didn't know God or know Christ, right? What are you telling me? I think of the illustration um, Francis Chan uses an illustration. He uses a rope to show the concept of eternity. And he says, imagine this rope, you know, stretches on for infinity. And then on about six inches of the end of the rope is a little piece of red tape. And he says, this is our life. And he says, we get so focused on uh, all the little parts. You know, I want to work all these days and then I'll relax on these days. And, uh, but not considering the entirety. And the issue is that there is eternity. And it's either eternal life or it is eternal death. I think we need to think through these things. This is the message of the gospel. If you know God, if you know Christ, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior, then you have eternal life. If you reject Him, you have eternal death. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how beautiful you are. It doesn't matter how many friends you have. It doesn't how much, uh, how much influence you curry. If you do not have Jesus... You are still dead in your sins. The reason Jesus came to earth is so that you may have life. And he's the one that came to bring the life. Jen says, I want you to know these things, verse 13. This is sort of encapsulates the entire of the letter. This is why I write. I want you to know these things. I write these things that you might know that you have them, that you may be certain of victory, that you may be sure of eternal life. Because if you are anything like me, I don't think I'm very good at living in light of 
these realities. If you were to ask me how, how I'm doing, I would probably drone on and on about all my responsibilities and how difficult and busy and hard everything is. Yes, life is full of challenges and struggles and pains. It's true. John Newton tells the story, John Newton, who wrote Amazing Grace and was the former slave trader, he tells the story of a man who was uh, on his way into the city uh, to claim a a sort of a multi-million dollar inheritance. And he's in his carriage, and he's riding towards the city, and um, he's very close, and he's thinking, I'm almost there. It's only a few more miles and then it's all mine. And suddenly his carriage hits a pothole. And he gets out and he sees that the wheel has fallen off and he realizes, I'm going to have to walk the last few miles to get to the city. Newton says, what would you think of this man if instead of just getting on with it and moving forward, heading to the city, he started to grumble And he started to complain, and he started to curse all the way to the city, not considering that all the while what lays before him, not understanding that the last bit leads to the inheritance. And that is how we can live our lives. Yes, we have challenges. Yes, we live in a fallen world which is groaning under the weight of of sin and death. But Jesus is risen from the dead. The King has come. And eternal life is ours forever. In some sense, we as Christians should be the the happiest, most joyful people around. But there's more. In addition to present victory and the assurance of eternal life, John tells us in verse 14 something absolutely remarkable. That even now, we can have great confidence uh, in in a great God who hears and answers our prayer. Look at verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him. That if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of Him. We've been discussing prayer and the, the, the nature of prayer uh, a little bit as a staff. How, how should we pray? What should we ask? The point being that we make our requests known. That We, we know that God is fully aware of, uh, of the situation, whatever it is, but, but it doesn't change the fact that God wants to hear from His children. He wants to hear from us. Personally, in my own prayer life, I, I, I think it's my sinfulness that keeps me from coming to God in prayer. What John is telling us here is that we who have Jesus can be confident to pray, not just that he will hear our prayers, he will, not even that he will just answer them, he will, but that when we ask Him things according to His will, He will give us whatever we ask for. But there's an important qualification here. 
It only applies to prayer which accords with his will. Verse 14. So we shouldn't expect God to give us something that goes against his will, right? Imagine that. It's like us asking God for bread and him giving us a stone, or asking for a fish and he gives us a snake. In fact, when Jesus teaches that uh, in Matthew and Luke, he says, who of you fathers would do that? If, if you fallen men wouldn't do that to your children, how much more your Father in heaven who is holy? Or imagine if God just gave us whatever it is that we asked for, uh, irrespective of the consequences. If my son asked for a motorcycle today, apart from not being able to afford it, and him, his inability to put that sentence together... That would be irresponsible. God won't give us things like that. He loves us too much. So John gives us an example in verses 16 and 17 of a prayer we should never expect him to answer. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he should ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. John is not saying there are people we should not be praying for. I think sometimes that's the interpretation. He's simply saying we should never pray against God's will by asking Him to forgive or to give life to someone who is sinning the sin which leads to death. Well, what is that sin? What is that sin? What is he talking about? Four times uh, in these verses, John distinguishes between sin in general, which, thanks to the blood of Jesus, does not necessarily lead to death. And there's one particular sin that does. And his point seems to be that while all sin, however terrible it may be, murder, adultery, the worst thing you could ever think of, all sin can be forgiven by the blood of Christ. But there is one sin which can never be forgiven. And we are not to ask God to forgive because he won't, and it is this. It is refusing to believe in God's appointed King, Jesus. That is unforgivable. Because the way he has determined for sinners to be saved is through faith in his Son, through faith in the sin-bearing death on the cross, so that the person who refuses to believe is basically turning their backs away from salvation. They are turning themselves away from God. They are swimming away from the lifeboat. We should never ask God to forgive in any other way apart from faith in His Son. Because He will not do it. It is not His will. But that does not mean that we shouldn't be praying for those who don't know Him yet. For those who have not put their saving trust in Christ, of course we should. That they may turn from their sin, that they would turn from their rebellion, that they would come in repentance and come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
1 Timothy 2 says that we should offer up prayers of intercession for everyone. So there is a qualification here. We should not pray for the things that go against God's will, but we don't need to be cynical here. We, we don't need to expect that there's some trick or some fine print. No, to assume that would be to miss something uh, incredible. The miracle. God is saying here that the holy God who, who has promised sinners like you and me that we can go to him anytime and ask him for anything in complete confidence that he will welcome us, that he will hear our prayers and he will give everything we ask for which accords to his will. Aha! Ha! There's the catch! You say, God says, ask according to my will. Uh, But I'm not going to tell you what it is. Right? That's not what he's saying here. He's not talking about his secret, sovereign, hidden will. uh, The will by which he governs the universe. Of of course we do not know that. uh, But we're not meant to know that. The secret things belong to the Lord, Deuteronomy 29.29. We are not responsible for those things. And we don't need to guess, though. Here's the point. Because God has revealed His will. How? Through His Word. He has revealed to us the sorts of things that He loves. The, the sorts of things He delights in. What he wills for our lives. So that when we take these things from scripture and turn them into prayer. Here's the promise. He will hear you. He will answer you. He will give you the things you ask for. In fact, we can be sure of this, John says. That as soon as we pray for these things, we don't have to worry about them. He's given them to us already. That is incredible. Do you believe this? Could, could it be that we don't have, because we don't ask, certain things? So that when we pray in general, that lost people would be saved. When you pray for workers for the harvest. When you pray that we as a church would grow in love for one another. When you pray for his kingdom to come. When you pray uh, for opportunities to share Christ with people around you. When you pray for wisdom. When you pray for comfort in your sadness and your grief. When you pray for courage to stand firm under pressure. When you pray that God will help you to say no to your sin. When you pray for these kinds of things, they clearly accord with his word and with his will. And you can be certain that God will answer them. You can be certain. How? I have no idea. I'm not God. That's not my job. That's his job. But he will do it according to his word. Our job is not to be cynical Not to try and figure it out. Our job is to pray. To see what he loves. To see what his will is according to his word. And to pray for these things. What do we have as believers? We have victory over the world. We have eternal life. We have confidence to go to him in prayer. Finally, John gives a summation of his letter. Good, I'm on time. Verses 18 to 21. 
And he gives this summation in the form of a sort of a further three reminders that we can know now that Christ has come. Verse 18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he, Jesus, who was born of God, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. In other words, it's over between sin and us. In the eternal scape, Jesus has us. We are secure in his hands. Then verse 19, we know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Finally, verse 20 and 21. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. And so, brothers and sisters, and so, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Keep away from the substitutes, the things that seek what only He can have. Let's pray. Father, there's so much in this chapter. I wish we could just unpack it for weeks and weeks. There's so much in here, and, it, and, and, and I find it so overwhelming, and yet I think the message to me is the gospel is overwhelming. The good news is overwhelming. There's so much here that should give us great confidence and, and, and spur us on. And there are so much here that challenge us. So, Father, we pray that we would take these things, that we would dedicate some time to to going a bit further in depth and, and, and putting these things in our heart, which give us strength. Father, that these things would send us out this week with great joy, with great confidence that we can be those joyful people who know that our eternity is secure, that we can live as victors, not as defeated people, because we have our confidence in you, the one who hears us, the one who has sent his son for us. Father, that we would wear these things on our hearts this week. In Christ's name.